Good morning. Keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 7. Those verses that were just read will be our text this morning, verses 11 through 17. And the title of the message this morning is The Power and Compassion of Christ. The Power and Compassion of Christ. In our text last week, we saw the remarkable faith of the centurion. And we noted, particularly, that he asked Jesus for a word. Say the word, and my servant will be healed. He believed that the word of Christ would be sufficient for his need. Well, from our text this morning, the very next account that we have in the book of Luke, we learn further about the power and compassion found in Jesus' words. And in this miracle, the account of this miracle, we also see many pictures of Christ's work as Savior. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we pray that as we open up your word this morning and study it, we pray, Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts and lives, a work of the Holy Spirit, a work of revelation, a work of conviction. May there be repentance and turning back to you. May there be a growth in grace. May we be more and more conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, and be equipped to go out into the world around and be faithful witnesses of your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, first in this passage, we're going to look at the need. The need that we see in this passage. We're told that Jesus went to the city Nain. Now, Nain was a small city, about 12 miles southwest of Capernaum. And this is the only time that this city is mentioned in Scripture. Now, look at the scene that Luke describes for us there at the beginning of verse 12. When he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. As Jesus and this multitude that was with him, as they came to the gate of the city to enter it, another group was coming out of the city. And this group was a funeral procession. A young man had died. And they were carrying him out of the city for burial, as was the custom. Now, we're given a few important details about this scene. First, we're told that this man was dead. Now, we're not told how he died, whether it was from disease or accident, we don't know. We're not told his age, although Jesus does call him a young man in verse 14. But something happened to him, and he died. This is not like the centurion's servant earlier in this chapter who was at the point of death, sick unto death. Not this man. This man had already passed that point. He was being carried out of the city for burial. He was dead. Next, we're told that he was an only son. He may have had sisters, we don't know, but he certainly didn't have any brothers. He was an only son. And then we're told that his mother was a widow. Her husband, the father of this young man, had already died. We don't know how long it had been since his father died, but this woman's life had already been touched by grief. Her husband had already died, and now her only son had died as well, making her a destitute widow. Every man in that family and in that society structure who had a direct responsibility to care for her and to provide for her needs had died. Now she was alone and destitute. She's a destitute widow. And notice that the miracle 
found in this text was witnessed by a large number of people. It's almost as if Luke makes a point of telling us how many people witnessed this miracle. First, back there in verse 11, we're told that many of his disciples, that's Jesus' disciples, went with him and much people. A large group of people had come with Jesus as he traveled down from Capernaum. His disciples were there as well as just a general multitude like those crowds described in chapter 6. And the end of verse 12 tells us that many people of the city were with this widow in the funeral procession. As this widow was going out of the city following uh, the bier that was carrying her son's body, there were a large number of people from that city who were going with her, mourning with her. And these two large groups, they meet near the gate of the city, Nain. Now in ancient Israel, the city gates were often places of commerce, They could also function as courthouses as well, where important legal matters were handled. And so it's likely that there were still more people present who just happened to be in this area, going about their regular business when these two groups met. Now this is important because an incredible miracle took place on this occasion. A man was raised from the dead. But this wasn't a miracle witnessed only by Jesus. Some might be skeptical when hearing of this miracle, but it wasn't as if this miracle was only witnessed by Jesus. Nor does this account rest upon the testimony of just the disciples. There was a great crowd of people who were present and saw this miracle take place. And remember that when Luke wrote this gospel account, it was around A.D. 60, about 30 years since the events described here took place. When Luke wrote this, there were still people alive in Nain who witnessed this event and could attest to the truth of the account as it was written. The young man who's mentioned in this text may very well have still been alive when Luke originally wrote this. And Luke gave all the details that someone would need to know in order to go and check and see if these things were true. The miracle that takes place here was witnessed by a large crowd of people. Well, so far in our text, we've seen the need. A man had died. He'd been the only son of his mother who was a widow. And this put her in a precarious position. She needed help. She needed her son back. But how could that happen? She had an impossible need. Well, next we'll see the miracle take place in this text. And in this miracle, we see the power and compassion of Jesus. Verse 13, we see the compassion of Jesus Christ. Verse 13 begins, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Now you can imagine this scene. As Jesus approached the city gates, he saw this other group of people coming toward him. And he saw that it was a funeral procession. He saw the dead man being carried out of the city. He saw the crowds who were following But in particular, he saw this poor widow, and he had compassion on her. Think about this. How many needs did Jesus see every single day? Not only physical needs, but spiritual needs as well. He was truly man, but he was also truly God, and he could see what was in the hearts of men. Certainly, everywhere that Jesus looked, he saw great needs. But in particular... When he saw this widow in her grief, he had compassion on her. Why? Jesus was around other dead people. He did not always raise them from the dead. 
Jesus was around a lot of sick or hurt people that he did not heal. Jesus was constantly surrounded by people with great spiritual needs, and those needs were not always resolved, at least not from our perspective. Think of Judas Iscariot, or the Pharisees, or the rich young ruler. Out of all the people who were around Jesus on that day, what was it that stirred up his particular compassion for this widow? We don't know. The only reason Scripture gives for this miracle is the compassion Jesus had when he saw this widow. And what a wonderful picture this is of the mercy and grace of God which comes upon men free and undeserved. If you are a Christian, if you're resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ for salvation, maybe, like me, you've had this thought. Why me? Why did God raise me from spiritual death to life? And Nicodemus was wondering about spiritual birth in John 3. And in verse 8, this is what Jesus said to him. So he's wondering about, how can a man be born again? Jesus says, you must be born again. How can a man be born again? And Jesus said to him, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. How is it that two people can be exposed to the same amount of truth from the Word of God, can go to the same church, can even be raised in the same family, and yet one is saved and the other is lost. How can this be? And the answer that Scripture gives is that God saves who He wills. Salvation cannot be earned by the works of men, nor can it be accomplished by the will of men. It is earned by the salvation, or it is earned by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and salvation is accomplished by Jesus Christ. He saves who He wills. Just as he was moved with compassion and worked a life-giving miracle for this widow, so it was Christ's compassion that brought salvation to you and I, fellow Christian. Isaiah 63.9 tells us, when Isaiah wrote it, of course, it was prophetic. And now we look back on it as fulfilled in Christ. Isaiah 63.9 tells us that Jesus took upon himself the work of our salvation and redemption in his love and pity. If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, this is a cause for wonder and amazement, and it should move us to worship God for the free and unmerited grace He has shown to sinners. Myself, chief among them. Now, if you're not a Christian, what are you to do? How can you be saved if the grace of God truly is free and unmerited? There's nothing you can do to earn the grace of God. No work, no prayer, no decision, no act of the will. Nothing can earn you God's grace. What can you do to be saved? What did Jesus say? Mark 1.15. What Jesus said, what Jesus preached. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. Does your repentance earn salvation? No. Does your belief earn salvation? No. It's not about you and what you do. It is about Jesus Christ and what He did. Come to Christ in faith and repentance, and you will be saved. Again, listen to the words of Jesus. John 6, 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. How can you be saved? Repent and believe the gospel. How was your salvation accomplished? By the grace of God given to you, free and unmerited. Again, verse 13 tells us, Jesus had compassion. Praise God for His compassion. Jesus had compassion 
on this widow, and he said to her, Weep not. Weep not. There's nothing wrong with grief. All of us, I'm sure, have been touched with grief, and we've wept. We're told that Jesus himself wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. But he said these words to this widow, signifying the help he was about to give her. He was about to raise her son from the dead. So he told her, weep not. This was a particular reason, or there was a particular reason for her particular case. But this principle can certainly be applied to all those who die in Christ. All those who die in Christ are present with the Lord, and their bodies will be raised again incorruptible in the resurrection. We are not to sorrow for them as those who have no hope, as 1 Thessalonians 4.13 tells us. We take comfort in Christ's compassion, in His Word, in His promises. And like this widow, we can hear the words of Christ, Weep not. Weep not. Jesus said to the widow, Weep not. Now look at verse 14. Verse 14 begins with these words, And He came. And He came. Jesus had compassion, and He came. Over and over and over again in the Gospels, we see that Jesus not only has the ability and the will to help mankind, but He actually does help. Jesus saw this poor widow following the body of her dead son, her only son, as He was being carried to His grave, and He had the power to help her. Not only did He have the power, He also had the will to help her. He had compassion on her. He had the power... He had the will, and He came. He drew near. We cannot help but see in this a figure of Jesus' work as our Redeemer. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and He alone had the power to redeem us. Not only did He have the power, He had the will to help us. Again, Isaiah 63.9 tells us He was moved by His love and pity. He had the power, He had the will, and He came. Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8 tells us, Jesus made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The Creator God entered his creation to accomplish our redemption. He came. And what a comfort it is to know that he came. Now look at the words of Jesus in verse 14 of our text. We're told he came and he touched the bier, and they that bear him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. Was Jesus mad? Was he insane? What was Jesus doing? Talking to a dead man. Imagine if you were one of the disciples there with Jesus, and you watched this scene unfold in front of you. Jesus saw a funeral procession. Jesus stopped that funeral procession. He said to the widow and bereaved mother, Weep not. And then he said to the corpse, Arise. What a scene this must have been. We have no indication that the people in this funeral procession knew who Jesus was. We're given no indication that they recognized Jesus. No one asked Jesus to say or do anything. There was no request made of Jesus. 
And yet here he was. And he said to this young man who was dead, Arise. The people in this funeral procession must have been shocked. We would even understand if they felt upset. What was this man doing talking to a corpse? Again, was Jesus mad? Was he insane? What was he doing talking to a dead man? Well, look at what happened there in verse 15. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. It's a wild claim from Luke. It's fantastical, right? Certainly there were and still are some readers of this gospel account who, like the men in Athens in Acts 17.31, mocked when they heard of the resurrection of the dead. How can this be? Yet we're told this is what happened. And remember, this is a well-attested-to miracle. A large number of people were present and witnessed this miracle take place. In Luke's time, if somebody wanted to, they could go to Nain and verify Luke's account, as many witnesses would have likely still been alive. It's a remarkable miracle which demonstrates Jesus' power even over death itself. He said to a dead man, Arise, and he rose. There was no madness in Christ's command because he possessed the power to make this dead man hear and obey this command. With a word from Jesus, Arise, went also the power of life. And this man who had been dead who just moments before had no power of his own, now he rose at Christ's word. And again, we see in this account a picture of our own salvation. We who were spiritually dead, we who had no power of our own to rise to God, yet the gospel call goes out to all men everywhere to repent and believe. And on the surface, it may seem like madness. We're dead. Yet all over the world, every day, dead men are raised by the Word of God. Romans 10, 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Salvation is a miracle of God's grace. Dead men are raised to life by the Word of God. Now look at what this young man did. We're told he sat up and began to speak. He sat up and he began to speak. He gave immediate evidence of being alive. Where there is life, there will be evidence of that life. And that is true both of physical and spiritual life. Now imagine if this account told us that Jesus raised this young man from the dead, but he lay there still on the bier, on that platform that they were carrying him on. He lay there still, and they carried him off and buried him. That's laughable. That's no resurrection. Where there's resurrection, there will be life. There will be evidence of life. And yet sometimes in spiritual matters, we're willing to rest in a bare profession. We claim spiritual life or we pronounce spiritual life where there's no evidence of being alive. You cannot be born again by the Spirit, become a new creature in Christ Jesus, and then go on being carried to your grave by your sins and your lusts, all the while appearing just as spiritually dead as you've always been. Salvation in Jesus Christ is transformative. It is life-giving. And where there is life, there will be evidence of life. Now look at what Jesus did for this young man. The end of verse 15 says, Jesus delivered him to his mother. And we're reminded that this is a miracle of mercy, a miracle of compassion. Jesus was moved with compassion for this poor woman, and he raised this young man from the dead, and he gave him back to his mother. That is where the record of this miracle ends. We're not told if Jesus said anything further to this young man or to his mother. 
We're not told if they said anything to Jesus. We're simply told that Jesus had compassion on this widow. And with the power of God, or even death itself, Jesus told this young man, Arise, and he rose. And then Jesus gave this young man back to his mother. Again, this miracle is an incredible example of Jesus' power and his compassion. The account of the miracle in this text is finished. But as you can imagine, this caused quite a stir. And the last two verses of our text tell us about the response of the people to this miracle. First, we're told at the beginning of verse 16, And there came a fear on all. There came a fear on all. This is the Greek word phobos, where we get phobia. It's a strong word for fear. It's the same word that Luke used to describe the fear of Zacharias and also the fear of the shepherds when angels appeared to them. It says terror. People were terrified, and certainly we could understand that response. Imagine if you were at a funeral and the dead man sat up and began to talk. And he did so at the command of another man who walked in and walked up to the casket and said, Arise. Now the dead man sits up and begins to talk. This is a surprising scene, a shocking scene. The people, we're told, are afraid. But notice also that this was a godly fear. A godly fear. Because verse 16 goes on and tells us that they glorified God. They glorified God. The Lord should be feared for His goodness as well as His greatness. They had witnessed a miracle and they gave honor where it was due. They glorified God. A very appropriate response. Now look at what they said there in verse 16. They glorify God, saying that a great prophet has risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. First, they call Jesus a great prophet. A great prophet. Now, why did the people immediately associate resurrection with a great prophet? They immediately make this connection. In the Old Testament, we have three examples, three specific accounts of resurrection. And all three accounts are found in or related to the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah prayed for the widow's son and he was raised from the dead in 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, in 1 Kings 17. In 2 Kings 4, Elisha prayed for the son of the woman of Shunem and he also was raised from the dead. And then finally in 2 Kings 13, we have the unusual account of a man's body that in a time of desperation, was thrown into Elisha's tomb. And when that body touched Elisha's bones, that man was resurrected. Now, Elijah and Elisha, they were two great prophets. The only prophets in the Old Testament who raised people from the dead. Now, Jesus also has raised someone from the dead. And so the people immediately identify this as the work of a great prophet, possibly the great prophet that was prophesied of in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And so they call Jesus a great prophet prophet. And then they said, God hath visited his people. Incredible statement. I don't think they realized the true depth of their own words. God had not merely visited them in an impersonal way through the power to work this miracle. God had not visited them in a figurative way, reminding or remembering his people, and sending them a prophet in their time of need and distress. But God had visited His people personally. He walked among them. He was standing there in the flesh. 
Remember the prophetic words of Zacharias in Luke 1, verses 68 and 69. The Holy Spirit came upon Zacharias and he spoke these words. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God had visited his people. He came for their redemption to accomplish salvation. He did not come impersonally or figuratively. He came in the flesh and visited his people. Now notice what verse 17 says. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. People talked about this miracle. News of this miracle spread. This word rumor has no nefarious connotation to it. It's just the word logos, often translated elsewhere as word or report. This miracle, remember, it takes place up in Galilee, the southern edge of Galilee. But word of Jesus and this miracle of raising the dead, it spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding regions. People talked about this a lot. Word of Jesus and this miracle spread, and then we're told that the Jews came in mass and bent the knee before Jesus, the Messiah. No. No. In fact, we're not told of anyone who received Jesus as Messiah as the result of this miracle. Even John the Baptist, who was in prison at this time, when he heard of this miracle, he sent this message to Jesus, and we find it just two verses Down in verse 19, when John the Baptist heard of this miracle, he sent this message to Jesus. Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? John the Baptist, who said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God, who cometh to take away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. John the Baptist, who said, He must increase, and I must decrease. Now he says, Are you the one that should come? Or look we for another. Nearly everyone in that region heard about Jesus. Yet few believed on Him. It's no different in our time. Many people hear the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. And yet they do not commit themselves to Him. They hear the gospel, but there is no faith. No repentance. They go on in sin unchanged. Maybe you're here this morning and that describes you. Maybe you've heard the gospel, but you did not receive it. You may have been deeply affected at some point in the past. You may have had a religious experience. You may have experienced the conviction of sin. And yet, you've gone on unchanged. Like the multitude described in this text, you may have experienced the fear of God. Even a godly fear. A fear that inclines you to glorify God. And yet, you know you are not saved. You've never been born again. You can hear the gospel and even tell the gospel to others and yet still not receive Christ. What must you do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Acts 16.31 Don't be satisfied with merely hearing rumors about Jesus. Don't merely observe Him from a distance. Believe on Him. Trust in Him. Put your faith in Him. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Isaiah 55.6 Seek ye the Lord, while He may be found. Call ye upon Him, while He is near. As believers, 
when we look at this text, we should be struck with the power and compassion of Jesus Christ as it is revealed here. Who is man that God is mindful of him? And yet this text reminds us of the compassion of Christ. Praise God for his compassion. But who can deliver man from sin? We need someone who has power over sin and death. Only God has such power. At the word of God, men are raised to life. Praise God for his power. The power and compassion of Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you again for these accounts of the miracles that you performed here on earth, for what they reveal about you and your nature and your interaction with mankind. We thank you, Lord, for your power and for your compassion. We rejoice in that. We worship you and glorify you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.